Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. Please be seated. And if you came in a little late this evening, the announcement is that John and Emily, Pastor John and Emily, his wife, are in labor as we speak, and they were checking into the hospital about an hour and a half ago. Yeah, we have something to applaud for and celebrate, absolutely. And we will applaud even more when the baby's born. Uh, so this evening, I am continuing uh, the Fulfilled series based on um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount given to us uh, in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Love you, God, as we um, turn our attention now uh, to your word, uh, we pray that your word... Um, would enter into our hearts and minds and transform our lives. May the words of my mouth and our thoughts and meditations be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've got a question for you. Can any of us be found guilty for a premeditated crime that we do not commit? That sounds like a riddle, so I'm going to say it again, and I'll make it personal. Can you be found guilty for a premeditated crime that you do not commit? Mm, it's a thinker. It's a thinker. Written 75 years ago in his famous book, 1984, George Orwell toyed with this idea. 1984 follows the character of Winston Smith who attempts to fight back against the totalitarian political party that rules a fictitious country called Oceania. In 1984, uh, it's a dystopian novel that warns of the dangers um, of such a government, see what I did there, that rules through fear and brainwashing and propaganda and surveillance which leads me to two of Orwell's literary ideas developed in 1984. One is called the Thought Police, the Thought Police, and the other is called Crime Stop. Through surveillance, the Thought Police monitors the psychological ticks of men and women and arrests those they believe are committing thought crimes. The implications of the thought police are wide-ranging. The citizens of Oceania are frightened into policing their own thoughts, by, and by doing so, they surrender their freedom of thought. That's the thought police. Crime Stop is closely related to the thought police. Crime Stop is this other literary concept Orwell developed. Crime stop occurs when someone stops themselves from thinking incorrect criminal thoughts. Wow. About 2,000 years ago, long before the novel of 1984, uh, some could argue that Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, touched on similar ideas. Recorded in today's scripture from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Jesus taught, you have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with another person will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to someone, Raka, 
is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go to be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word to us this evening. 2,000 years ago, Jesus ironically found himself in opposition to the religious rulers of his day, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. I say ironically because you would think that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would, with great anticipation, be willing to welcome Jesus into their presence and learn from him. Uh, But instead, Jesus found himself in opposition to the religious leaders. When interpreting the sixth commandment, thou shall not commit murder, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees taught that if one simply had not committed murder, then one stood in obedience to the law. That makes sense. Therefore, they were right with God. This made people, or at least this made the teachers of the law and the Pharisees swell with pride because they felt holy. Why? Because they hadn't killed anybody. Keep in mind, like the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel before him, Jesus condemned the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, saying to them in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, like whitewashed tombs. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I had this experience uh, over this summer. Uh, how I, I'm sure many of you have been to uh, Forest Lawn in Glendale or uh, what is it, the Burbank Hills there, Forest Lawn. And I had this experience this past summer uh, where I went there and it was early morning. I was, I was doing a service and I got there and the fog was hugging the mountains and I got there and if you've been there, it's uh, immaculately like taken care of. Uh, grass, green grass, there's trees. It was beautiful. And I had like the, the, the wonderful experience of actually having a herd of deer like on the side of one of the roads there. It was absolutely beautiful. So keep that in your mind's eye. Woe to you, you teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites, like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of rotting, dead bones and everything unclean. Harsh words of criticism. As you can see, spiritually speaking, according to Jesus, it's not just what we do or what we don't do that counts. It's what we think. It's what we feel about in our hearts. It's not just our exterior actions that matter. It's also our internal motivations that count as well. So let's acknowledge that in today's scripture, Jesus's rhetoric spiritually corners us. It corners us because when Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say, anytime you call someone a fool, right? 
the hyperbole there is so extreme that it paints us spiritually into a corner. You, we, we find ourselves questioning, well, how, how is this supposed to work? We're forced into a spiritual corner. But then we must remember that it is by grace that we go. There but by grace of God go I. In other words, without God's grace, <laughs> we're toast. So moving forward in this evening's service, I make it an assumption for all of us that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. Now, that is an assumption. Now, having said that, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount also pushes us to think deeper about our own Christian ethics. Christian ethics. God's best way for us to live our best life. Christian ethics. God's best way for us to live our best life. We can look at today's scripture and discover very practical applications for our lives. Best practices for living well. For example... You've probably heard this saying around this church, because I think it's been around here for at least 15 years. Perhaps you've heard it in other places, and I've actually heard this saying in other places as well, and I'm always surprised when I hear it, when I hear it outside of Stonebridge. And here's the saying, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. Now, if you're asking yourself, what does that have to do with tonight's scripture, I'm going to tell you. Hurt people, hurt people. Tonight's scripture begins with this topic of murder, but Jesus pushes us beyond the murder and looks at motives and actually addresses the, an issue of anger. You know, anytime you look at someone and call them a fool or call them raka, you are in fact, you know, condemned to hell essentially. So murder, uh, at the core of murder, Jesus addresses anger. And what I have learned through years as a pastor at this church counseling with people is that anytime someone is feeling anger, at the root of that anger, there's actually hurt. Anger is an outward expression of inner hurt. Hurt people hurt people. Now, I'll admit there's many motives for committing murder, and trying to imagine all of them is a dark exercise that I would prefer to avoid. However, I think we can all agree that when a person is hurt, their first instinct is to retaliate. It's a knee-jerk reaction. When we are hurt, I think for most people, our first instinct is to retaliate. And with a little imagination, we can see how that, this instinct might lead to terrible consequences, perhaps even murder. So the action of murder reflects the sick condition of the human heart. And that's just what Jesus is getting at when he refers to calling someone raka or, or you fool, you idiot. Jesus, and that's really the direct liberation, idiot. Jesus is, is pointing not to just the act of murder, but he's pointing to the condition of the broken human heart. Hurt people hurt people. Which leads to my first point this evening. Christian ethics, right? How does our faith influence our actions, our lives? What is God's best way for us to live our best life? Number one, if you feel angry, ask yourself, what's my hurt? If you feel angry, ask yourself, what's my hurt? 
Proverbs 14, verse 29 reads, the person who has a hasty temper invites folly, but whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. In other words, I'm asking you this evening, when you feel anger, I want you to slow down, slow your roll, take a breath. Next time you have that strong emotion of anger, instead of impulsively striking back, train yourself to slow your wool and to ask yourself, if I'm angry, how have I been hurt? Prayerfully ask yourself, if I'm angry, how have I been hurt? Acting out of anger will not heal your hurt. In fact, acting out of anger is most likely going to cause things to get worse and will ultimately postpone your own personal healing of the hurt that you have experienced. So instead, a head start towards healing and a head start towards peace with others is exercising self-awareness by asking yourself, what's my hurt? And when you fully appreciate this idea that hurt people hurt people, you'll come to also understand that you're going to find the condition of your heart in a healthier place to be able to forgive others. Christian ethics, right? If you feel angry, first ask yourself, what's my hurt? And then prayerfully address it. God's best way for us, for us to live our best life. I think today's scripture also highlights a sense of urgency about these types of matters. Leave your gift at the altar, it reads. Settle matters quickly. So number two in tonight's outline is this. Resolve conflicts quickly. Resolve conflicts quickly. There were two men who lived in a small village, and they got in a conflict with one another, and they could not resolve it between each other. And so they quickly decided they would talk to the village sage. The first man went immediately to the sage's home and he told his version of what had happened. And when he had finished, the sage nodded, scratched his chin and said, you are absolutely right. Right behind him, the second man came entering in and he too immediately shared his side of the story to the sage. And the sage responded, you are absolutely right. And they both left. Meanwhile, the wife of the sage had been listening to both conversations and she came in and said, how can you tell both of them that they're absolutely right? That's just impossible. And the sage scratched his chin. You are absolutely right. <laughs> now, joking aside, the only thing that they got absolutely right in this story is that they tried to deal with their conflict immediately. When we don't address conflicts in a timely way, when we prefer to let them, you know, let it, let it slide, when we prefer to, to sweep them under the mat, do you know what happens? Relational negligence leads to negative outcomes. Conflict can fester and inevitably hurts actually accumulate. Relational accounts build and they remain unsettled. And, you know, no one really keeps, well, maybe some of us keep a little book of, you know, the names of people at work and they're, oh, they even said this to me. Uh, but most of us don't do that. But we do in our hearts and minds. When someone wrongs us, when someone says that thing that hurts our feelings, somewhere we, 
we, you know, consciously pay attention to that. And we, we have a little, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an Excel spreadsheet in our head. And we're going, positive things they've said, negative things they've said. And, and, you know, when we ask them to help us and they don't, you know, all these things begin to fester and accumulate. And it can lead to negative outcomes because the, it's like, you know, a, a balloon that's just beginning to fill and beginning to fill to the point where it's about to pop. It's like a dam that's, that's overflowing with water. It may crack and burst. And so tonight's scripture keeps, to, encourages us to, to, to resolve conflicts quickly, to don't let, them, don't let these things accumulate. Keep accounts short. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 reads, Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-sinking. It is not easily angered. But this last phrase, love keeps no record of wrongs. So I've, so, I've short-sold you. You know, I'm, I'm saying try to deal with it quickly, but this scripture says, you know, delete the file. If you feel angry, ask yourself, what's my hurt? Resolve conflicts quickly. And lastly, take healing steps forward and trust that God is in the process. Take healing steps forward and trust that God is in the process. Christian ethics, what is God's best way for us to live our best life? Thankfully, the Bible prescribes specific ways to take healing steps. For example, I'm going to share with you two biblical passages with guiding principles that address relational conflict. The first is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they do not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, take it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as if you would a pagan or a tax collector. So this was written as a directive really to the community of faith, the church, but there are principles here that are eternal and applicable in all our areas of life. When we are dealing with conflict, relational conflict with others, keep the account short, deal with it quickly. And this scripture really maps out a three-step process. And the first step is, and I would, and this is me coaching you, right? Like figure out if you're, if you're angry, Stop yourself and ask yourself, what's my hurt? Prayerfully take ownership of that and take ownership of your side of that conflict. And then this scripture encourages us to then take it to the person and talk it out one-on-one. -on -one. And if they're open to that and you win them over, then all is good. And there's a step two. If, if it still doesn't go over well, it, it, it's inviting in that, that third party in, into the conversation um, hopefully they're unbiased and they're trustworthy to both parties and they can help um, na na navigate the, through the conflict and, and bring resolution. And then lastly, it says bring it to, to more than that. And, and this is true in the church, but this could be true in places of work and other places as well as a principle. Now, I will be honest with you. In my life, 99% of the time, I've never had to go beyond step one. 
When I've prayerfully thought, okay, I'm hurt right now. I'm angry. What's my hurt? And I've thought through that and prayed through that. And I've said, okay, what's my role in this conflict? Okay, maybe I have said things and behaved in certain ways. Okay, when I've taken ownership of all that and then I've gone to the other person and sought to resolve the situation uh, with authenticity um, and, and with a genuine heart for seeking peace, 99% of the time that has been valued by the other party and we've worked through it and we've moved forward. So, so that's my personal testimony that it works. And there are the times that it's gone uh, beyond that. Um, and actually, it's always worked. <laughs> I can tell you that. The 1% of the time that it's gone beyond step one, it's always worked, in, at least in my life. So that's uh, one biblical prescription in terms of uh, God's process for, for dealing with um, relational conflicts. And then uh, for us learning to actually trust that process and recognize that God can be in that process. The, the other one I want to share with you is from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, plans succeed. Now, taken literally, this is talking about planning something, but I think it also, the principle of this scripture applies to our relational conflicts as well. Because there are times when, okay, I'm just going to work through the whole process, right? I'm angry about something. I stop. I pause. I take a breath. I think, okay, what's my hurt in this situation? I prayerfully think through that. I try to take, take you know, ownership of the things in my life that perhaps have led to this uh, interpersonal conflict. But then there may be that question mark. Am I just crazy? <laughs> right? So that's the point where it's appropriate to seek out someone you trust, perhaps a mentor, uh, perhaps it's someone in the church, perhaps it's a pastor, perhaps it's someone in your growth group that you trust and you go to. And what I am not prescribing and what, what in this scripture is not prescribing is gossip. This is not, I'm just going to talk trash behind someone's back and feel better. Because that's ultimately just self-destructive and destructive to the situation as well. This is seeking out wise counsel to say, okay, Here's the situation. These are the things I've worked through. Am I still seeing things clearly or do I need a fresh perspective? And that person may confirm it or they may deny it. And when you work the process, you have to go into it with a humble heart because you may actually not hear what you want to hear, at which point you have to circle back in prayer and say, okay, God. And right? We do this with doctors. Sometimes we don't like the news we get with a doctor. So what do we do? We get a second opinion. And I think that's okay to do with this as well. Because, right, with many advisors, plans succeed. So go to someone else. Say, hey, I'm struggling with this situation. I've talked to one person. Um, you know, they gave me this insight. What do you think? And if you trust that person and that person confirms what the other person says, wow, that's a humility lesson. <laughs> But it also goes the other way. When you have advisors who say, no, I think you've got it right. I think you've got a healthy perspective on this situation. It allows you to then move forward to the Matthew 18 steps with a sense of confidence. When we comply with the biblical prescription, the healing of our hurts will happen. When we comply with the biblical prescription, um, there is healing and there is peace by doing so. But it, re it requires faith to know what the process and the steps are and then actually by faith step into them um, is required. 
If you feel angry, ask yourself, what's your hurt? Resolve conflicts quickly. Take healing steps forward and trust that God is in the process. This, this is how you will prevent yourself from committing premeditated murder. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, loving God, um, we do not deny uh, that it's inevitable uh, that we uh, step on other people's toes and other people step on our toes. Feelings can get hurt. And sometimes it is over the smallest of things. And uh, other times, especially when we allow these types of hurts to accumulate, um, it can become much deeper, a much deeper wound and ultimately uh, sever and um, and break and destroy and um, break the unity of the friendships and the relationships both in our family and in our church and in our workplaces and in our schools. And yet, Lord, you call us to unity. And, um, and not only that, uh, you are the Prince of Peace and you call us to be peacemakers. And so let us first seek and desire peace within our own hearts open and vulnerable to your presence in our lives. And as we experience that peace, help us to um, eagerly desire to follow your uh, biblical principles to create peace in our relationships with others. We pray all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.
The God that saves, you are the one. 